This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Stuart Richards, your host for this evening. Joining me tonight are Emma Westwood and Sally Christie, all recovering from the Oscars, I'm sure. Yes. That's right. Certainly what am. were your favourite? Oscar favorite? hangover already. <laughs> <laughs> what were your favourite moments? My favourite moment? Um, my favourite moment was when they actually missed out on saying Toby Hooper in the In Memoriam. <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty disappointing. <laughs> it was like, oh, and, you know, it's just directed a couple of the most important films. And they also had footage of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre playing at the Oscars in one of their compilations as well. Really? So that, yeah. Did they? Yeah. Oh, I didn't notice that, but that, that's even, that makes it even <laughs> it worse. Does. It does. But, but always my favourite moment is the In Memoriam for some reason. That's just, um, you know, morbid fascination or seeing if you miss out on anyone. But I, I felt like I was right across it this year. I always feel like with the in memoriam, I'm looking for who they miss out every year. Every because year, they do. Yeah, they yeah. always they yeah. always miss people out. Yeah, I felt yeah. I was being a bit obvious calling it out on Twitter, but you know, anyway, it's got to be done. There you go. Mm. I am happy that Shape of Water won, though. I'm definitely happy with that. Yes, yeah. I think that it deserved it. Although, oh well. That said, Get Out was the show at uh, the film at the end of last year that um, three of us on Plato's Cave agreed was one of our top ten films. Um, but then we hadn't seen The Shape of Water by the time that happened. So, yes. What do you think of it, Sally? I am very happy that A Fantastic Woman won the best foreign feature. Yes, yeah, did, that was I great. Did, I yeah. did. That was yeah, fantastic. Very, very well deserved. And yeah. I'm also, yeah, Shape of Water was very deserving. It was gorgeous. Mm. Great. Well, on tonight's show, we'll be discussing Francis Lawrence's espionage thriller Red Sparrow, starring Jennifer Lawrence and the Netflix sci-fi film The Cloverfield Paradox. But first, Paul McGeegan's Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool is a biographical romantic drama based on the memoirs of Peter Turner, in which he details his turbulent relationship with Hollywood actress Gloria Graham, who smouldered as Addo Annie in Oklahoma, and perhaps better known for her performances in important film noirs, such as Nicholas Ray's masterpiece In a Lonely Place, in which she played Humphrey Bogart's lover, Sudden Fear and her Oscar-winning role in The Bad and the Beautiful, The Big Heat, Human Desire and Naked Alibi. Annette Benning plays Graham in her final years of her life, capturing her Betty Booper-esque voice and oozing sex appeal. Jamie Bell is brilliant as the much younger Peter Turner. The film explores the connection between these two, alternating between Graham on her deathbed in the early 1980s and the dynamic woman encountered by Turner a couple of years earlier. Also starring are Julie Christie, Kenneth Graham, sorry, Kenneth Granham and Vanessa Redgrave as caring parental figures. While seeming an odd couple, the chemistry between the two leads is strong and believable as the film explores loneliness and ageing in an industry that privileges youth and beauty. The backdrops of, uh, of to the American themes are theatrical yet highly artificial, something I really enjoyed. I do wish, however, that I learnt more about her life than what was shown in this film. What did you think? I loved it. Hang on, I think it was Julie Walters. You said Julie Christie. Did you? <gasps> I, I just I have did. to make, because I know you didn't mean that, and I was <laughs> like... Not- Julie Christie, was she in there? And I didn't recognise her. I've actually got Julie Christie written down here yeah, as well. Yeah, but I still read yeah. out Julie Walters. 
<laughs> no, so um, yes, I I went and saw this last night in a at a nine thirty session that was um, very lonely. It was just me in there watching <laughs> this movie. I'm actually kind of quite upset that I was the well I wasn't upset that I was the only one because it's always lovely to be the only one in a cinema but I think it's a film that really does deserve to be seen um I love that opening sequence with the song um song for Guy um the Elton John song with her um Annette Benning as Gloria Graham uh, get, getting prepped for her her on her on stage performance and just the the detailing of her rolling out all her makeup and and that was something that kind of occurred a lot throughout the film. There was those those moments where, you know, even um, towards the end, towards her death, where she her makeup is packed up even, you know. Um, and there was something that I noticed that right at that start that she had chipped red nails, you know, it's a chipped nail polish that I would actually like to watch the film again and, and look more closely because she, I think it disintegrated as she went along. Is that right? Yeah. At the end too, I noticed at one of the very final scenes, I noticed her nail polish. Yes, yes. It was kind of more like with the nail polish that um, she she tried to take it off and had left it all around the cuticles. There just seemed to be something so point, pointed about that. But the film itself um, really relied on um, that relationship between the two of them, obviously, because it is just more of a two-hander than anything. And I think that Jamie Bell and Annette Benning managed to capture this incredible rapport, which sold the film so well. Um, and it wasn't so much, and what I loved about it was, you know, not just that we see so many films where it's accepted that it's not even made an issue that we're accepted that a much older man is with a, a young woman. Um, not only did we have an older woman with a younger man in this, but it wasn't an issue. The film wasn't about that as such. It was just about this relationship. And all the other characters, the supporting characters in the film, didn't seem to care. Yeah. Um, I think some of the, the fact that that was a lot of the star status of her, that most of the people in the film were starstruck by her. And also she just had the charisma to pull off, you know, that people just liked her and she managed to fill a room. Um, and, you know, Annette Benning really embodied her. I couldn't have thought of a better actress to play that role, really. Yeah, she was I also really enjoyed the relationship that Gloria had with that was really sweet. Um, you know, and how she said it kind of sick and I'd be pretty as well. Yeah. Um I my favourite thing about the movie, I did I loved it as a whole, I thought it was really good, I was very moved by it. But I liked what Stuart was saying. Um, the backdrops between of New York and LA in there that was kind mm. of my favorite thing incredibly beautiful and also you know the scenery of Liverpool was great too but um Jamie Bell was phenomenal in it like just absolutely outstanding I don't know that I have seen him in much apart from Billy Elliot to be honest but yeah he was excellent he did a good disco dance you would expect Dancing him to awesome. <laughs> Really awesome. <laughs> the, the LA stuff was really done like um, a, a beautiful dream. Um, it was almost like that they they had this interesting way of doing segues between different um, uh, 
different moments in time and different places where he'd walk through a door or go through a window and it was like the whole of the LA scene was actually written, um, shot through windows, if you notice. There was a lot through like either the back of the car window or through the window of her. Essentially she was living in a trailer, wasn't she, on the beach at one stage, but it was just this... Glorious yeah, trailer. Beautiful sunsets behind her, just absolutely stunning. Yeah, mm. yeah. And and her mother, as uh, Vanessa Redgrave, as her mother sitting in there. Great cameo. I want a more yeah. of her. <laughs> yeah. we've, awesome. actually, we've actually had a bit, tonight's a bit of a Redgrave night because we've got Jolie Richardson in um, Red Sparrow as well, so daughter of Vanessa Redgrave as well. Um, but, yes, yes, it's... I, I think that this was just perfectly paced. Paul McGuigan, who um, directed it, had... Just paced it so beautifully, and the way he did this, essentially, what was sort of the the the, the climax, the, the sort of t- third act turning turning point of the film, where the you, where she discovered of her illness had come back, and they they kind of reversed it and went back over it to um, to tell it from her perspective rather than his perspective, which really managed to amplify the emotion and unbeknownst to me <laughs> I didn't expect it but the tears came and I'm sitting here by myself in the <laughs> cinema with no tissues and I had to use my dress hem to dab my eyes so probably for the sake of flashing the people in front of me it was good that I was <laughs> yeah. by myself. Yeah. <laughs> I cried. I cried a lot as well. But um, I also really enjoyed that he wasn't aware of her stardom as much. I, I That part where the bartender says to him, oh, she won an Oscar, didn't she? And yeah. you can just see the surprise on his face, that kind of that everyone sort of was starstruck in the film by her apart from him was, yeah, excellent. The romance between the two is so believable. And it's really sexy, I mm. think. Mm-hmm. As you were saying before, that the, the age difference doesn't really play into it whatsoever. Apart from that one dinner scene with her sister, uh, that never really comes into play, I don't think. Yeah, that's, it's more comes into play just the only um, fights they have is around her insecurity around age. and it's mm. But it's just a small thing. It's not overplayed. But that dinner, dinner party scene that you were talking about... Um, and what was unfolded about the story of Gloria Graham. Like, I, I find her to be an incredibly captivating person, but it's really interesting in light of viewing movies in today's environment with her being, she did sleep with a 13-year-old boy, right? And that's, so, glossed, that's glossed over pretty quickly in the film, I think. It is. It's decided, I think, they realised that you need to, it was such a big part of her backstory but it wasn't a part of this story yeah and that's why it didn't need to be it didn't need to be over accentuated also it, it, it would it would create a different story all of a sudden we'd be coming into a moral judgment and that wasn't part of this story mm-hmm. but it's interesting that we're made we're, we're made to sympathize with a character like that where you know people won't watch Roman Polanski films because he slept with a 13 year old yet you know this is this kind of you know is it a double standard? I don't know. She, as a woman, but she, her story that basically destroyed her career. Um, that's where her relationship with Nicholas Ray. He did what was Rebel Without a Cause as yep, well. Yes. He did, yep. and he did a really interesting Joan Crawford film called Johnny Guitar, which is <laughs> you know a great film. Um, but um, 
then she she left him and she married another man. And then when um, Tony Ray, the stepson, who was the underage stepson, got older, they ended up marrying and she had the longest um, marriage of her life with him. Great. Well, uh, it's a bit controversial, though. Bit controversial. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back. Sally is connected now, which I'm is back great. On the mic. Yep. She's back on air. Oh my god, we can hear her, <laughs> and everyone else can hear her as well. Uh, now, uh, coming up, we'll discuss Red Sparrow. Dominika Agarova, played by Jennifer Lawrence, is an unwilling Russian spy in Francis Lawrence's espionage thriller Red Sparrow. Based on a book of the same name by Jason Matthews, the film is a viscerally violent one that sees a woman who will do anything to protect her unwell mother. With her career as a prima ballerina in tatters after she breaks her leg, Dominika is approached by her uncle Ivan, who works in Russian intelligence. Dominika is tasked with seducing a Russian politician in exchange for her mother's medical care. When the politician rapes Dominika, he is killed by another Russian operative, leaving her as a witness. Dominika now has two choices either be killed or sent to the perverse and sadistic training pro- uh, program known as the Sparrow Program. One free of the, once free of the program, she's tasked with seducing an American CIA agent, played by Joel Edgerton, who tries to get her to flip to the other side. The film is supported by a surprising amount of names. Charlotte Rampling plays matron, the matron, the headmistress of the Sparrow Program. Mary Louise Parker plays a corrupt and drunk US Senator's chief of staff. And Jeremy Irons plays Gen- General Vladimir Andreevich Korochnoi. The film has all the campiness of a James Bond thriller while having a few glaring drawbacks. The various Russian accents are all poorly done. Ian's English accent was evident in his uh, um, in his performance, while the Irish actor Kieran Hines plays the Russian colonel, who also has an Irish twang. The sexual violence committed against Lawrence's character is also overwhelming at times, going beyond any narrative justification. Sadly, this does not live up to the heights of Salt, Atomic Blonde, or even Black Widow in The Avengers. What do you all think? Oh, it doesn't live up to Atomic Blonde. Yeah. Would you say that? Okay, I felt that it wasn't quite as, um, oh, well, to, to use a, a phrase I don't really, a word I don't really like, but camp. I don't think it's that, it's not as camp as Atomic Blonde. And I think maybe that comes from the fact that the the book it was uh, the guy who wrote the book. What's his name? Jason Matthews. Matthew, yeah, Jason yeah Matthews. was um, a retired CIA operative himself. So it has a little, a mo- maybe a, a, a morsel of reality there. But um, I kind of felt when this film started that it was going to go down the, the more sexually sadistic path. And in fact, I think if you put maybe someone like Paul Verhoeven at the helm of this. <laughs> that was in my last thing. That really? was in my notes. I was like, if Paul Verhoeven made this film, it would have been brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> because it felt like it was sort of, there was a lot, a lot going on thematically here that um, maybe if it had committed to one theme, it would have, um, it would have been tighter. And, um, and it's definitely a film like, well, the way Atomic Blonde, 
you know, turns in on itself. We don't know who is, you know, we don't know what her motives are and the Jennifer Lawrence looks for the most of the film as though she's been carved from marble. <laughs> so you can't actually get a sense of any expression from her, which is which is on purpose, mm. you know. She's meant and she looks just absolutely stunning and, you know, captivating to see on the screen. But um, overall, I think some people would find it a little bit confusing, um, but... Overall, I found it to be a bit of a, a rollicking joyride. I actually did in, enjoy the the whole experience because it's kind of got this post-Cold War vibe and I felt that it was kind of like a carry-on of the Cold War in the post-Cold War stage because, of the, you know, the feeling of espionage and that. And really I think I've... I'm sort of over this age of terrorism in cinema. I kind of bring back the Cold War in cinema, I say. Um, and it also re- it played out, another one of the themes playing out was that idea of basically sex slavery and sex, sexual trafficking and the way, especially I guess with those Eastern Bloc countries, this idea of even the male order brides. And I don't know if, if anyone's seen the, the documentary, the Kitty Green documentary. She's an Australian filmmaker who did The Ukraine Is Not a Broth. And it sort of reminded me about like that too, about women being sort of sexually empowered, but really being the puppets of men. So it was about finding that um, upper hand in a situation where you don't have any choice. Yeah, I kind of felt that I I didn't feel sympathetic towards anybody or I just I felt that it wasn't it didn't fully commit to what it was wanting to do and that was the issue with Red Sparrow for me there were parts when she was in the what was it the Sparrow school where she was what did she call it horse school or something like that that I kind of felt like I was watching a PG version of Sailor or something like that <laughs> it was I got just that vibe as well. trying yeah, to be yeah. quite edgy but then not, I, I don't know, like it was just, it fell really flat for me. And like Emma was saying, if Paul Verhoeven made it, it would have been, I think, the, had the potential to be brilliant. And Jennifer Lawrence, she is great. Like, I think she's good, apart from her Russian accent and <laughs> why they were speaking English to each other in Russia, you know. But you know. <laughs> Why they had, uh, the Russians were an Englishman, an Irishman, yeah. a Belgian. Uh, yeah, it was a very interesting mix yep. of Russians. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I, when the, 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 the actress started speaking with the Irish accent as a Russian colonel, I just lost it in the cinema. It was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't. They didn't even really try to um, commit to that in in any way. I don't think was there any Russian language in it. I can't remember. There was one, um, but they weren't in Russia. Where were they? Um, in Czechoslovakia or somewhere? Yes. Hungary? Were they? Yeah, she was in Budapest. Yeah, Budapest. That's right. That was the only time she spoke Russian in the film. Was when she was yeah. in Budapest. It, yep. it was beautiful. The 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 sets, the the de- set design, and the locations were beautiful. Yeah. I think it was mainly shot in um, Bratislava and Czechoslovakia. We needed mm. we need Cerise here. That's her that's her area of specialty. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I found it really interesting the name play in this because. I couldn't help but think that Darren Aronofsky, who was dating um, Jennifer Lawrence and she was in his last film, who split from him, mind you, because of the age difference, film stars don't die in (laughs) Liverpool, I'm connecting everything, you see, was made Black Swan, now 
um, with, which is around the ballet scene. Now we've got her in this red sparrow and she's a ballet dancer. And then there's a little tell in those names. I don't know what Nate Nash is meant to mean as a name, the American name, just to be more American than American. Sounds very American, yeah, Nate so, Nash. Yeah, so Nate American. Nash. <laughs> but if you notice the character Dominica, kind of suggests something about her character and there's another character called Marta which as soon as I heard her name I thought okay I know what's going to happen to her and surely enough it did happen to her so there were kind of little tells all the way through it which was kind of a little bit interesting but it was a a particularly brutal movie Mm. Mm. More than anything. I had mm. to, I mean, quite, I mean, I, I feel like I've got a very strong stomach when it comes to cinema, but there were a few scenes, uh, particularly one of the scene involving skin, mm-hmm. that I was curled up in a ball in my seat. Um, I think this, the sound of that scene is quite horrific. Yeah, yeah. It was, I thought it was very confronting in its, uh, and I was surprised because I was in a cinema of relatively older people who I think that, you know, when they expect spy thriller probably weren't, expecting quite that yeah. level of gore. <laughs> I thought the same thing with the audience when I saw it as well, that they were a lot of older people and I was like, oh, there was, know, I wonder how you're coping. There was but also that scene that you you actually mentioned, Stuart, where um, when she, she uh, the guy's killed and the guy, the, the, the operative, the CEO, well, what is he, the Russian guy, whatever they were, CSV or something <laughs> the they were called. Operative. Yeah, I can't remember the, the organisation they were meant to be from, but... He was. He comes in and kills, you know, that guy. So you know, she's kind of trapped in this situation, um, and then she has this kind of odd relationship with that character through the whole film. It kind of felt like some sort of that felt like the most sexual relationship to me for some strange reason. I didn't. I didn't think that at all. Really? Yeah. yeah. No, didn't pick up on that. That guy. Yeah, yeah. I found because it, it was sort of that. Um, it was more sexuality through violence, though. It was a bondage and dominance thing. Okay, yeah. Because she was, any time she came across him, it was either they were complicit together or were they or they weren't, but they were kind of, there was one scene where we were wondering whether they were enjoying the violence together, let's mm-hmm. just say. Mm. And then when we do have that scene where there's sexual activity that doesn't involve violence, it is so dull. <laughs> you know <laughs> And so, so quick. And so quick and no emotions whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, considering so many other scenes in this film are packed with a kind of just this visceral quality, then that happens and it's just so vanilla. <laughs> yes. Mm. It was. <laughs> yep. yeah. Three, triple, ah. The Cloverfield Paradox. Announced as a Cloverfield film in late 2016, a surprise trailer for the film aired during the Super Bowl on February 4, 2018, with the film dropping on Netflix immediately following the game. Produced by J.J. Abrams' Bad Robot Productions and directed by Julius Ona, a Nigerian-American filmmaker, the film follows an international group of astronauts aboard a space station who, after using a particle accelerator to try to solve Earth's energy crisis must find a way home after accidentally uh, going to an alternate dimension. The cast playing the team is quite impressive and notably diverse. We have the German Daniel Bruhl, the Australian Elizabeth Debicki, 
the Norwegian Axel Henny, the English Gugu Mbatha Raw and David Oyelowo, the Chinese Zhang Ziyi, and the Irish Chris O'Dowd and American John Oritz. Gugu Mbatha Raw's Ava Hamilton is the emotional anchor of the film, providing the narrative a weighty connection back to Earth as she tries to communicate with her husband. The film's connection to the Cloverfield universe, I would say, is slightly tenuous, providing very few interesting narrative revelations. The film does not live up to its clever marketing um, of the Super Bowl trailer, uh, which gave the impression that we would understand the origin of the monster that appeared in the 2008 film and was later hinted at at the critically acclaimed 2016 follow-up 10 Cloverfield Lane. When watching this film, I couldn't help but think of the film Sunshine from uh, 2007, directed by Danny Boyle. Uh, what did you both think? Well... Um, yes, you, you, talking about it being te- tenuous, uh, I don't think that this was ever um, intended to be a franchise at all. No, yeah. no. So Cloverfield itself, uh, if anyone's seen it, uh, it, it's, you know, very much was meant to be a standalone feature. If not, it was meant to be the start to a kaiju franchise. So the big monster franchise that the Japanese sort of, you know, have propagated with the likes of Godzilla and Gamera and Mothra and all these big, these big monsters, and which was a response, um, Godzilla was a response to the, the Japanese bombing by the Americans in World War Two. So I think that, um, Originally, at the time when Cloverfield came out, which was 2007, um, Abrams saw it as an opportunity to create a a monster, a monster response for America to um, uh, 9-11. That was what it was intended to be. And, of course, it used that, of course, it used (laughs) that found footage style of the time, which was seen as, you know, which was very... Vogue at at that point in time. Thankfully, he, he they haven't bothered to keep on going with that. Oh, I loved the found footage uh, aesthetic. In there. Of oh, look, I, I do, I do, yeah. I do like it. Look, I have not a problem with found footage films, but just if I don't think there's room for every or every horror film to be a found footage film, and especially if this continued across the franchise, I don't think I would be happy with that. Yeah. But. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting how that it went from that big sort of external monster film to this really small, paranoid, internal domestic horror psycho thriller with 10 Cloverfield Lane, that um, conspiracy theory really that we were guessing, is he bad or is he, you know, is he, is, is he saying the same thing, um, the right thing and, um, and that... Other things were happening in, happening in the world outside it, and then this has sort of gone in the big scale again, even bigger maybe because we've gone into outer space and we've actually gone away from Earth, and we're trying to um, in this film solve Earth's energy problems, um, which basically um, come down to it's really about religion, if anything. Even though I, I like that. This is the aspect I liked about the film, that it had the religious element without being overt. It was only that one time when the guy, um, uh, John Ortiz's character, was 
he was obviously very Catholic and he was praying and they kind of rolled their eyes or made some mm. comment about it. But otherwise it was all around this idea of life force and energy force being, um, and that was, that was I think, the religious message in it. And I believe the book was actually called God Particle or yeah, something. the original book was called God Particle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which so, sort so the of, original script. I did like the kind of the, um, I won't give away anything for those who haven't seen it, but towards the end there was a particular fight scene which was very clearly a good versus evil. We could even see that in, you know, the um, actor's skin colours and all that kind of thing coming through that was, I I thought, really interesting. Um, With the marketing for this one, I know what you're saying about the Super Bowl, and they had that huge, it was like a six-month marketing campaign or something for the original Cloverfield. Yeah. So I always kind of thought in my head that they must have intended it to be a franchise because did they do that with 10 Cloverfield Lane as well? Did it have that big kind of marketing hype around it? Actually, I'm not sure, but Mm. I, I think that... I think it was meant to, if, if, if it was going to be sequeled, it was going to be sequeled in a different way. Because okay. these are not really sequels. They're kind of just loose universes Because there's another one coming it. out in October. Yeah, and you yeah. can, well, we yeah. can see, we once can you see, see the yeah. end of this film, you can yeah. see what that means. Because <laughs> yeah. it seems like with those two previous films, they had previously written scripts that weren't connected to the franchise and then they were almost like rewritten back yes, into it. Yes, exactly, exactly. And you can kind of feel that level of retrofitting that's gone on, I think, in both the films. Not in the second one, which I, I feel is the strongest. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. This film I actually found myself going and reading over the plot after I saw it and I thought, well, it can't be that good a film if I, I need to too. clarify the plot. I kept thinking... <laughs> Well, I know that they're on there. I know that they're doing something specific, but I'm not quite sure what that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What they kept on one thing that really annoyed me was they kept on using techno babble in these conversations to justify one character going off there, because obviously characters are getting killed. Someone would be like, "Oh, I have to, you know, fix the ventilator transponder," and just. <laughs> Throw out these long words and then, oh, by the way, that's going to cause his death. Yeah. Um, they did do that a lot with the condensation stuff. There was, you know, yeah, and none right, of that was did. ever really explained mm. or, or done in a way that felt that it justified all these characters getting killed. I yeah, think. it was interesting because I think there was a lot of, in terms of high conceptuality, it was trying to do something similar to what Interstellar did, but in a far less sophisticated way. Yeah, um, I thought that it was like, it was almost a combination. They were kind of going for Interstellar and Event Horizon mashed together. together. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't. It wasn't a. Um, it was definitely not a, a, a small budgeted. No, film, absolutely not. But it yeah. wasn't a. Um, uh, shall I say it wasn't sophisticated? It had no. it, it had a sort of more of a riotous coarse quality to it. But I did like that. You know, you were thrown. You were thrown things that you couldn't place that were quite unusual in in the world that they were in this, you know, being on this space station. Um, things happened that, you know, they were this sort of red herrings in some way, some of them. But um, I felt that it kept it did keep you guessing and it, and it did make sense sort of. <laughs> Was like it, I said, I had to clarify. It. <laughs> was it made? Um, was it one of those things like with the upcoming Annihilation film that Netflix has bought off a studio, or was it a Netflix-made film? Do we know? Was it their own uh, content? Or? Paramount. 
So it was at Paramount again. Mm. They okay. bought they bought it yep. off. Um, they mm-hmm. bought it off Paramount. Mm-hmm. But the cast, as you were saying, the cast is a really interesting cast. Incredible cast. Yeah, Daniel Brühl and Chris O'Dowd are in every movie. Yeah, <laughs> I thought Chris O'Dowd was kind of the odd one out. Yeah, he gave here. me the shits in it for sure. Because he, <laughs> he has, and this, I like him. I mean, I love yeah. him. He has this Chris O'Dowd shtick to him and all these jokes and they kept on popping up oh, in these really yeah. tense situations <laughs> and it just didn't work for that genre. There whatsoever. was one, yeah. one point where something has happened to his character. It's pretty good. And then he just <laughs> straight away makes a joke. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen to you when you're instantly going to make yeah. a Maybe joke. Maybe he was in shock, you know, and that was his shock <laughs> response. I don't know. And speaking of, um, before we were with the Red Spar, we were talking about the language barrier and everyone speaking in English. I thought it was really interesting that Zhe Yi Zhang's character yes. speaks yeah, that was good. Chinese. I like And I love that everyone yeah. knew Chinese and they were speaking to her. Yes. The one thing that frustrated me was that she obviously could understand everyone else, but she would only ever respond in, in Chinese. So I don't know how she understood them if she didn't speak English. I think that maybe, I think the idea was they were all bilingual and it was just moving between the Chinese and oh, the okay, English. Yeah. Free. I, I, I think, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But I did like that. I like the way it made it that not English wasn't necessarily the primary language here. Yeah. It was another language and that the international space station was really played out. Mm. Also, Elizabeth Debicki is just, you know, quite remarkable. I think she's a she's from a different gene pool. I don't think she's actually from Melbourne. I think she might be from Mars because she's so incredible and talented and an overachiever <laughs> who we're going to see just more and more and more of. So our Elizabeth, go our Elizabeth. Yeah. We need to take I mean, her. Her, her. Her emotions are so impenetrable, I think, in this film. Trying to read her as a character and trying to read her um, and her so character's justifications and where she's going. Mm-hmm. So hard to read. And I really love, that was one thing I really enjoyed about the film. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. But um, yeah, it, overall, a little bit, a little bit sloppy. I think that um, the 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 end is a great moment, uh, but uh, which I can't say, obviously. <laughs> but otherwise, mm, not really. I mean, I was I was watching this film expecting there to be some form of connection. Uh, to the, the the Cloverfield universe, that got such good, like especially Ten Cloverfield Lane got su- you know yeah. such good praise that you'd think that. But there yeah, was there was, there high was connection. There was the end, <laughs> and it didn't come out yeah. to the end. I was like, all right, the, there we go. Very very end. That's it. Yes. The very like final few seconds. Yeah, because obviously there's uh, Ava's husband Michael who is on Earth, and I did find that maybe. I think it, they they shot his scenes really separate and quite late. I think because they he didn't seemed, seem to yeah there set, was a disconnect there yeah mm. there was a really strong disconnect. I felt that and I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but it just didn't seem. I sort of also felt that thematically that stuff with he saves a young girl or whatever. Why? Yeah. What was that? That just was a completely <laughs> superfluous nonsense. I kind mm. of tuned out in my head in those. Mm. It didn't have anything to do what what was she meant to be the newt character from aliens or something there was a moment <laughs> where they did a little bit of an alien homage yeah. which i thought was kind of cute because they didn't push it over overboard um overall though i think if you compare it to something like life from last year it was a more successful film let's just say <laughs> there was because this is a netflix film i was watching it on my laptop 
And he, Michael's getting all of these text messages throughout the film and because the screen was so small, it was impossible to read all of the texts he was getting. So I literally had to pause my uh, pause Netflix on my laptop and like get the screen up really close to my face so I could try to read what Michael's text messages were saying because it all involved this little girl, but it was yeah. impossible to find out what those texts were and where that storyline was going. That's actually a good point. Um, that's That comes down to, the, you know, really the viewing, new viewing of cinema because especially with Netflix, taking on more and more and more projects, um, that's something that has to be taken into account because mm. we're no longer just relying on that big screen experience and it for is cinema. And it's a really different experience and I think that there, I, I've noticed that there has been quite a bit of backlash with them buying Annihilation off Paramount and that going straight to Netflix that, um, yeah, is really going to change out the way that we view things for sure. Especially when you're dealing with something that has monsters and is meant to have, big, I mean... Yeah, larger yeah, than life experience. Yeah, the larger mm. than life experience. And you've got people watching, you watching on your laptop. I mean, I wouldn't watch a film on my phone, but I know that there are going to be more and more people that are doing that. So unless we have absolutely um, fabulous um, eyesight, which I don't think many of us do. <laughs> I sadly don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a problem. But anyway, yes. And which is a real shame because visually this is a stunning film. Yeah, it is yeah, a it does film look film to look at. There it does some, look yeah, good. There are some moments with um, the character Ava of her with like watching screens and and by windows and that are really beautiful to look at. Mm. But I think it gets lost in that Netflix viewing well, experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Sally, for today. My pleasure, Stuart. Thank Thanks. you to Emma. Thank you, Stuart. Um, the, well, I have been Stuart and I will continue to be Stuart. Um, <laughs> I'm really glad because yes. I like you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you have been listening to Plato's Cave on 3RRR. Thank you to Faith Everard, who uh, does our podcast, and which you can also listen to us on. And thank you to Carl Chapman for his technical assistance tonight. We'll see you all next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.